You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you nearsighted? Well, 20,000 years ago, the chap with poor eyesight was in trouble. You might not see that hungry lion at 50 paces. Hey, Zork, is that you? What are you doing lurking in the high grass? And would be hauled and mauled out of the gene pool. Today, Zork's friend would still be around. He'd be wearing a pair of glasses... Our tools and technology can make up for physical shortcomings, glasses, toothbrushes, fur clothing, and a host of modern methods for combating disease that once spelled doom, antibiotics, vaccines. Civil engineers may have saved more lives than the entire medical establishment simply by building sewer systems. No, Mildred, we're not throwing buckets out the window. We're civilized. We now have indoor plumbing. I don't trust it. Eventually, technology did more than simply make up for our shortcomings. It changed our environment. It was the ization movement. Industrialization, mechanization, computerization, zombificationization. (laughs) Some more transformative than others. Today, technology is evolving at a feverish pace, but our bodies are not. Our environment is changing faster than our genes. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to give you a wide-angle view on science and technology and where they're going. Adaptation is a natural response of all living things, whether to changes in our cultural or biological environment. But what happens as we change the world faster than we do our ability to live happily in it? Residents on the Hawaiian Islands have spent the occasional evening the way many of us do when the weather turns warm. The difference being that there it never has to turn. Sitting outside and enjoying the sounds of crickets. All crickets call by rubbing the back of one wing against the underside of another, which makes a noise kind of like the one you'd make if you rubbed your fingernail across the back of a comb, kind of a type noise. And this is how it's been since as long as anyone can remember. Then one year, the chirping stopped. It was incredibly disconcerting because you always feel like a cricket's main reason for living is to produce a call. So if you see crickets and they're not making a noise, I started wondering if maybe I'd suddenly gone deaf. Evolutionary biologist Marlene Zook says that beginning around 2003, the majority of male crickets on two Hawaiian islands no longer produced any sound. They'd gone totally silent. But why? Why did these crickets suddenly go quiet? Did they lose the ability to sound off or simply choose not to? We'll let Marlene Zuck give the answer at the end of the show, but we hope you'll try to figure it out along the way. 
as the silence of the crickets reveals something fundamental about living things. Okay, that's not the actual sound of Daniel Lieberman running down the street, but it could be. The Harvard evolutionary biologist is a long-distance runner. Yes, he does marathons. And when he's in training, he's hoofing it barefooted. He eschews shoes for the sensation of making direct contact with the dirt on a trail or even the concrete on a sidewalk. He says that barefoot running is just a small corrective that he can make to the many ways that we've allowed our tools to insulate us from discomfort, inconvenience, or, heaven forbid, the expenditure of a few joules of energy that really isn't absolutely necessary. And as a result, he says, it's not just the soles of our shoe-clad feet that have gone soft. Put it this way, modern society is not exactly suffering from an epidemic of tight washboard stomachs. We eat more, we exercise less, and now 30% of the global population is obese, according to health researchers at the University of Seattle. And for Dan Lieberman, recognizing the mechanisms of evolution help us understand not only the weight of the world, but also why people suffer from back pain, diabetes, heart disease, and a suite of other contemporary ailments. In his book, The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease, he suggests that we think about our health as influenced not just by immediate factors, like that big slice of chocolate cake you ate last night, but as a consequence of our evolutionary roots. For example, the way by which we turn those cake calories into fat in the first place. But believe it or not, relatively speaking, and compared to other animals, we have nearly always been a fat species. We needed fat, and that's the problem. Sometime in the last few million years, I would argue actually probably in the last million, maybe 500,000 years, we became an especially fat species. Um, and that and that is because we need fat uh, as a kind of reservoir of energy to support a very unusual reproductive strategy. Uh, we need lots of fat to pay for our very big, large, costly brains, which don't store energy. And we also need fat because we're very energetically uh, active species. We, we travel and we walk, we work more than other species. And so fat has played a very important role in our evolutionary history, more crucial in, in some regards than in other species. And as a result, we have all kinds of adaptations, not only to, to crave foods that make us fat and to be really good at, at storing fat, but also at keeping that fat. So, for example, one, one feature of our bodies, which many people don't understand, is that um, when your body loses weight, right, and when you're, when you're burning fat right, in a diet, um, that sends all kinds of... Um, alarm signals to your to your physiology that um, that activate adaptations to prevent us from losing fat. That's why you you elevate cortisol levels, which which activate appetite, want you to crave uh, comfort foods. These are adaptations. The obesity epidemic that we're experiencing now is different from the increase in body fat that you believe happened tens of thousands of years ago. It was adaptive. Well, it was an adaptive 10,000 years ago not to lose weight because, because you would lose weight, actually, because there are periods of, of feast and famine. You know, their uh, hunter-gatherers don't have abundant resources available to them. Every day they have to go out and find the food. They don't have surpluses. Today we live in an environment because of agriculture and industrialization where we have plentiful resources, but we never evolved to, um, to cope with too much of these resources. And the result is we are extremely prone to obesity, and, and lack adaptations to lose weight. Uh, so a natural selection never geared us to lose weight when we had too much because that was never a problem. So it sounds as though our genes are actually adaptive, meaning we're holding on to the fat for a reason because our, through 
throughout evolution that was adaptive. But we're having a health crisis now. And one of the things you write about is it's not just that we're storing too much fat, but other things have changed in our environment. It's not just the presence of more food that we're eating more. For example, our sleep patterns have changed. So we're in an environment now that is that is maladaptive to well the genes that we have, or at least it's um, disruptive to our health, to our good health. And what's going on? There are a number of factors. Well, I, I want to address an issue you just raised, which was what does adaptation really mean? Remember, we, we have all kinds of adaptations in our bodies. We have thousands of adaptations in our bodies, which of course evolved for very different conditions than we live in today. But remember what adaptation means. An adaptation is defined as a feature that you inherit that's novel, that's derived, that evolved through natural selection, that gives you higher reproductive success than others in your population. So we didn't evolve to be healthy. Our adaptations aren't there to make us healthy. Our adaptations evolved because they gave us reproductive benefits. So just that's, for example, the problem with the paleo diet, the idea that, that somehow if you eat uh, what our ancestors ate or live a lifestyle, uh, our ancestors is somehow going to make you healthy. It isn't because, again, we didn't evolve to be healthy. We evolved to have lots of babies. But, but certainly there's a relationship, a correlation between being healthy and being reproductively successful. Oh, absolutely. So, so, but the point is that we are adapted to be healthy insofar as health helps you have more re- offspring. Well, I'd like to get back to this to this mismatch between our environment mm-hmm. and yeah. and our genes. And yet evolution is the ultimate R&D, isn't it? It allows species to become highly adaptive to their environments. And yet now it feels like we're not adaptive to our environment. What is going on? So, so we are adapting. Natural selection is still going on, right? All the conditions for natural selection still exist. Uh, but you said adapting, so we're still in flux, but we're not adapted to? Well, no organism is ever completely adapted to its environment, because it's a, it's a moving target, right? It, adaptation is an imperfect process, right? And, and because environments are constantly changing, and new organisms are evolving that are competing with other organisms, and, and there's constant competition. So things are always in flux. Nature is never constant. Darwin recognized this in The Origin of Species. But the important point is that the, there's another kind of change going on today, and that's cultural evolution, which is not based in genetic changes. It's, it's what we invent. It's our minds creating things. And, and cultural evolution is happening now so rapidly, and it's so profound that it, it swamps what we see from natural selection. Just think of the changes that have occurred you know, in our lifetimes in terms of technology and, and how much carbon dioxide we're pumping into the, into the air and all those all the other things that are shifting. High fructose corn syrup, uh, cars, shopping carts, uh, and those are changing our environments so fast, there's no way natural selection could possibly keep up, right? Because natural selection is a slow process. Are most of the changes that have in our environment that have created this mismatch, do they have to do with our diets? I would say that the it's you know hard to apportion exactly the variance, but it has to do with diet and physical activity and sleep and stress. I would say uh, those are the four major ones, I would guess. Well, you write that um, we still have the endurance of athletes and that we're actually disposed to walk and run many miles a day. How far did our ancestors walk a day? And I understand that the term ancestors is pretty vague, so you can define that if you like. So um, the evidence is that uh, if you look at hunter-gatherers, for example, from around the world, the worldwide average for hunter-gatherers, and we were, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers until a few hundred generations ago, but the average hunter-gatherer walks 
a, a female hunter-gatherer walks about nine kilometers a day, so about five miles a day. The average male walks 15 kilometers a day, so about 10 miles a day, every day. This is average. And so that means, put it into real terms, it means the average female hunter-gatherer basically walked from L.A. to Washington, D.C. every year. That was normal, and also while carrying things. And people also ran, and they dug me, and they climbed trees, and they processed food. There were no machines to do work. There were no animals to do our work for us. So all work was done by human power. So it wasn't really until the Industrial Revolution, and we started creating machines, and elevators, and shopping carts, and cars, and and escalators, and the list goes on. We even have electric toothbrushes, so we don't have to move our hands when we brush our teeth. That has dramatically changed our body's environment. So here's, a, here's, a, here's one of my favorite examples. You know those sewing machines, electric sewing machines, right? Well, my grandmother used to use a, a pedal sewing machine. She loved this machine. I remember her, her using it. And people have shown that actually just putting that electric motor on the sewing machine saves about 15 calories an hour. Now, you may think that's not very much, right? That's just like a tic-tac or two, right? Say, imagine you were doing that eight hours a day. You had a union job, right? Eight hours a day, five days a week, 50 weeks a year. That's 52,000 calories a year. That's enough energy to run 18 marathons just by putting a motor on just the electric sewing machine. Now add escalators and moving sidewalks and, and elevators and shopping carts and all those other changes, you can have just appreciation of how less work our bodies do. So now people who want to get physical activity, they have to go to a gym or, or jog. It sounds as though many of the tools that we've created throughout history to make our lives easier, to make them more efficient and so forth, have in the end been detrimental to our health. And I wonder if there is a time in history where there is a balance, where there is the perfect tool, the tool that allows you to get the work done, but still allows you to use your, be as efficient with your body as possible. So for example, you know, hoeing in the garden might be good. Um, but as you said, escalator might not. Where's the, where's the harmony? Well, I would think of it differently. I would say that everything has a trade-off. Every time you do something, you don't do something else. There's no such thing as, a, as a, an, any innovation, any evolutionary change, be it natural or invented, that doesn't have a trade-off. So a hose, for example, um, or, 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 or plows or tractors, all of these have advantages and disadvantages. The advantages are they, they make you a better farmer and you can have more food, and more food means more babies. But the disadvantages are maybe less physical activity in the case of the tractor, or in the case of the farmer, having more offspring means more population density, which means higher rates of infectious disease. So everything has trade-offs. So what, is, what are the benefits of an escalator? Well, an escalator... Is, I mean, it's, it's, it's human nature to want to not have to expend effort you don't need to. Remember, in the past, right? That's not a benefit, though. That's I didn't not say, actually a but benefit. But remember, I'm, it is a benefit if, if you are in the margin of energy balance. So remember, most hunter-gatherers struggle to get enough energy, right? They don't have the energy that we have, right? They, don't have, they can't go to the corner store and buy yodels and ding-dongs and lattes, right? So they're struggling to get just enough energy to pay for their reproductive needs. So if there were escalators in the Kalahari Desert, I guarantee you that the hunter-gatherers there would use them because that's energy that they can use for reproduction. And look, every time I go into the museum in my building, I'm on the fifth floor, I want to take the elevator. And one of the main reasons I don't take the elevator is that I will be labeled a hypocrite if I, if I don't, but I want to. And I force myself to take the stairs for various reasons, right? We have to coerce ourselves today. But in the, in the past, nature coerced us instead. Well, one of the things that you do and you're, and you're known for, and in fact, it's on the cover of your, your book, 
you're a barefoot runner and you run marathons. I don't know if you run them all barefoot, but what is it about barefoot running that acts as a, as a kind of corrective to our environment, at least in your opinion? I'm not sure if it's corrective, but it's fun. Um, you know, we evolved to run and we evolved to run barefoot. I think the thing that's most important about barefoot running, well, there are two things. The first is that um, when you don't have all that supportive stuff in your shoe, your foot muscles have to work harder. And so uh, my foot is definitely a lot stronger than it used to be. I have to see if you have shoes on right now. Uh, I'm wearing shoes, but I'm wearing minimal shoes. Okay, so no you are wearing no shoes cushioning. at the moment. And I'm not opposed to shoes. And when I, a lot of the time when I run, I wear shoes. It's only in the summer when it's nice. I mean, shoes are useful. They protect the sole of your foot. But again, everything has trade-offs. There are costs and benefits. So the, the, the benefits of shoes are they protect the sole of your foot. Uh, the costs are that they, the muscles of your feet have to work less hard, particularly if they're very, you know, shoes that have all kinds of stuff, fancy stuff in them, like cushioned heels and arch, and arch supports and toe springs and all these technology that we put into our shoes. But for me, the other thing that's really important about shoes, about but going barefoot, is that the fourth most innervated part of your body, supposedly, is the sole of your foot. You get lots of sensory feedback from your foot. That doesn't, that happened for a reason, right? It's useful to get information from the ground that helps your central nervous system function properly. And and we lose that when we wear cushioned shoes. So when you run barefoot, you stop slamming into the ground hard because it hurts, right? So when you wear a shoe, you may slam into the ground, but the shoe cushions you and you don't feel it. So what barefoot runners have to do is they have to run lightly and gently. And I think that's the most important thing about barefoot running. It forces you to, to land softly. And, and when you land softly, you don't put those huge impacts on your body. Um, and uh, and it's, a, it's a way of learning to run. Um, so you have to slowly adapt your body to actually be able to run barefoot if you've not been doing it before. So you have to be really, really, really careful if you try it. You know, just run down the street for 100 feet and see what it feels like. You mean down... Well down the sidewalk? Do yeah. You, do, you uh, run, do you run on the sidewalk or do you run on trails? Where do you I run? I run on city streets and sidewalks. Yeah. Do you know what's on city streets? Yeah. But you know what? When I get home from my run, I wash my feet. I, I, I think one of the funniest moments I ever had was I was running uh, in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, and uh, a woman who was walking her dog said to me, how can you run barefoot? And I just couldn't help it. I just said, how can you let your dog walk barefoot? And the look of shock on her face. It's okay for our dogs, but not for us. Uh, when I get home from a barefoot run, the first thing I do is I go wash my feet. Probably because how... there are so many dogs also on our sidewalks. Oh, There's yeah, a lot of on. things we let dogs do that maybe we shouldn't let them do. <laughs> oh, come on. I think dog poo is not one of the big serious concerns, health concerns out there. Look, but the important reason I run barefoot is I enjoy it. It's fun. I get pleasure from it. Remember, it's, there's nothing abnormal or strange or bizarre about it. We just live in a world today where we think it's normal to wear shoes, but that's a blip, right, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, actually, it's abnormal to wear shoes. It's abnormal not to have calluses on your feet. It's abnormal to be sitting in chairs. It's abnormal to have breakfast that comes from a box. It's abnormal to fly in these metal tubes through the air. There's nothing wrong with these novel things, but they all have costs and they all have benefits. Daniel Lieberman, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's been my pleasure. Daniel Lieberman is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University and author of The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. So I think the point Dan is making is that we were wired up during a period of scarcity 100,000 years ago, and today we live in an era of abundance. And, well, it just doesn't work as well. And there are limits of how much our genes can change to our quickly changing environment. Coming up... Remember those silent crickets? Any ideas as to why they quieted down? We offer some theories next. Also, why rising sea levels are not a uniquely modern threat, but our inability to respond to them is. It's apt to adapt. 
on Big Picture Science. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So the goal of genetic adaptation is not to ensure better health, although that sometimes happens, but to ensure that you and your genes remain in circulation long enough that there's hope they'll be passed on. In other words, adaptation is about sticking around long enough that you can reproduce. As we've heard, human biology cannot quite keep pace with the changes in the environment around us, and we'll hear in a moment how that plays out when we talk about changes to the climate. But back to those male Hawaiian crickets for a moment. And this is relevant, as you'll see. They went silent on two islands, remember? No more chirping. Well, what happened? We can throw out a few theories. Poor memory. They simply forgot how to chirp. How does the melody go again, Ralph? You know, I plumb forgot. Or someone told them that crickets should be seen and not heard. Or the crickets are on a Buddhist silent retreat. Maybe the crickets are quiet because they only chirp in the woods when no one is around. Well, it could be a passive-aggressive silent treatment. But more likely, they've all jinxed each other and they can't chirp until someone says their full name. Jiminy Houndstooth Eldridge. (sighs) Thanks. Nope, I have yet to say the third. Dang. The solution to the mystery of why the Hawaiian crickets went silent later in the show. Back to changing environments. Today, sea levels are rising, and they threaten to rise further. And they're rising for two reasons. Our atmosphere is warming, so land ice is melting. Greenland and Antarctica are two examples of that. And the oceans are warming, and so they're expanding as they do so. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, sea level has been rising at a rate of one-tenth an inch a year since 1900. Now, that's not much in one year, but it adds up, and the data indicate that the rate of rise is increasing. But a rising tide is not new, certainly not over the vast expanse of human history. What's different is that human agency is behind the phenomenon. Also, we aren't so nimble in our ability to adapt. In his book, The Attacking Ocean, anthropologist Brian Fagan says there was a time when civilization could just pick up and move to higher ground when the waters rose. But where does Singapore go today? New Orleans shows us how successful we are at quickly getting out of harm's way. Those who do are often the affluent. We're attracted to living near the fertile and beautiful areas at the water's edge. That's also not new. We've been drawn to those shores since the water locked up during the Ice Age was released, according to Brian Fagan. Sometime after that, the ancient Egyptian civilization started to flourish along the Nile. Today, the threat of rising waters has gone up a notch. A report from NASA and the University of California, Irvine, indicate that six Antarctic glaciers have gone into irreversible retreat. Now, this could cause the waters to rise another four feet or 1.2 meters in the next 200 years. And life, such as that clustered along the coast of Florida, just for example, could change dramatically. It would be a disaster because so many people want to live in sound of the waves. So many people want to live close to sea level. So many people are attracted to the area because of the cooler climate. And you would have tens of thousands of people displaced if the sea level was rapid. If the sea level rise is 
slower, then at least we have time to make decisions about what to do. So whether or not it's catastrophic depends on how quickly it happens? Mm -hmm. Yes. And if you take, for example, 15,000 years ago, global sea levels were 300 feet lower than they are today. 300 feet. Most of that gain up to near modern sea level was finished by about six to 7,000 years ago. Very rapid. The places that got impacted most were areas which were low-lying like the North Sea. You may not know this, but 10,000 years ago, the North Sea was dry land. Fortunately, the population of the North Sea at the time was a few thousand people. They were hunters and foragers and fishers, and they moved all the time. And they lived in this very dynamic environment, and their strategy was to move. Our strategy, whether you're in Florida or in the Bay Area or in the South, you can't move. There's too many people. There are a number of people around the world to whom the effects that you described would be relevant. Tens of millions. And many of them are extremely poor subsistence farmers, like you have in Bangladesh. Others, like the population of Shanghai, which is a unbelievable city. Have you been to Shanghai? I have not. The skyline is amazing. But the city basically is at sea level or slightly below, thanks to ambitious construction of high-rises and draining of the groundwater, Shanghai's sinking. What do you do? Do you build defenses at vast expense? Or do you move millions of people? Or do you try and do that and transform the economy of Shanghai? The answer is probably that the only option you have really is to wall the city off, and the expense is enormous. And and I would assume that those resources would be useful for the people that have the money and for the wealthy set and, and not for the poor farmers, as you said. You're talking about governments. You're talking about political will. You're talking about taxation. But above all, you're talking about long-term planning. And long-term planning is something which in the United States tends to be in short supply, largely because the political world is obsessed with short-term election cycles. These aren't problems that can be solved in one election cycle. They require forethought and courage and the commitment of enormous sums of money to do anything about it. So 15,000 years ago, we were at the height of the Ice Age, and the ice began to retreat. And so that water has to go somewhere, and the sea levels rise. And during that time, all of this land is now made available to humans, and they took advantage of it, and they took advantage of the warmer temperatures. And what happened to civilizations during that time, and to what degree did coastal areas play a role? That is a very intricate question to answer. When the sea level rise was really at its height. Everyone in the world lived from hunting and fishing and foraging. And one of the things that happened was a fairly dramatic, by the standards of the day, movement from inland to coastal areas, which were exceptionally rich in plant foods, game, fish, birds. There was also a shift towards hunting and smaller animals and fishing. This, of course, wasn't happening everywhere. In other places, the forest cover increased and people had to adapt from big game to small solitary game. But then, about 
11 or 12,000 years ago, some people in what we call the Near East or the Middle East began to cultivate crops. That means you settle in one place, and that dramatically changes the equation. Settlements get larger, and your mobility is considerably affected. And then there was a third stage about 5,000 years ago when the first urban civilizations came into being in Egypt and Mesopotamia and later on the Indus Valley and then China. Now, these created very large cities by the standards of the day, 5,000 people. In Mesopotamia, there was clearly a connection between the flooding of the Persian Gulf, which used to be practically dry land in the Ice Age, to an area which was surrounded by swamps. And it was on the edge of these swamps that the first farmers and cities began. You get in Egypt, you get the building up of the Nile Delta by silt and the formation of villages and then cities. So there's a very close connection between rising sea levels and complexity of our society. Let's move to Europe. You tell the story of a land that geologists called Doggerland. Mm -hmm. This was a land that was unearthed by geologists. And, and what did they learn about this? This is actually a remarkable scientific story. Back in 1934, a English trawler trawling for bottom fish on the Dogger Bank in the middle of the North Sea dredged up a lump of peat. And as it fell on the deck, out fell a beautiful bone harpoon, identical to ones on land in England and in Scandinavia. Since then, they enabled to reconstruct a submerged landscape of rivers and lakes and marshes and wetlands, which was an absolute paradise for hunters and fishermen. So when was this? When did it flourish? It flourished or existed, probably the better word, from before 10,000 years ago up to about 5500 B.C., when the last higher ground, which was the Dogger Bank, was submerged. So it was occupied by humans for at least 5,000 years. So really this was a kind of extension of their territories, and they simply moved back to higher ground and adapted to new circumstances. So the story, or the moral here what we take from this is that sea level has been rising and falling for millennia. And in this case, the people were able to mm -hmm. adapt. The sea has always been very dynamic. Our relationship with it has always had to be very dynamic. We have created with our big cities a much more static relationship with it in a way, because we are set where we want to live. And this completely changes a lot of the uh, dynamic. What is the potential for us to build our way out of this mess? The biggest thing we need is long-term planning and political will to make some very long-term decisions, some of which are going to be wrong, but we make them. Are you optimistic? Is it even just too simplistic to put it that way? Molly, I'm an archaeologist, and the unique thing about archaeologists is that we deal with long periods of time. A century to an archaeologist is a blink of the eye. But having said that, it gives us extraordinary perspectives on an enormous variety of human societies. The great thing about archaeology is it really teaches you about human solutions to problems, about the diversity of our lives and our societies. And I would say that having done this for a lifetime, I am, on the whole, optimistic about humans. We have come through some absolutely catastrophic events. Thousands of people have died. 
but humanity has survived. Will we survive? Yes, but in what form or doing what about rising sea levels? Nobody knows. And finally, on the subject of time and intervals that are much shorter than the ones you just described, how much time do we have to change our habits with regard to rising sea levels? Let me give you an example. In Bangladesh, where the average height above sea level is 38 feet, I once heard a talk by a retired Bangladeshi major general, a very, very competent man. And he said that in 50 years, they estimate they will have to move, are you ready for this figure, 10 to 20 million people, all of them subsistence farmers with ties to their land who have no expertise for the industrialized world. That's the scale of the problem. And if I was asked for a time scale, I would say within half a century. Brian Fagan, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Brian Fagan is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of The Attacking Ocean, The Past, Present, and Future of Rising Sea Levels. Coming up, why an environmentalist who dedicated 20 years to fighting environmental destruction has decided to throw in the towel. Find out how he has chosen to adapt to what he calls global ecocide. It's apt to adapt on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Paul Kingsnorth has been an environmental activist since the early 1990s, when he was in his 20s. I've involved myself in campaigns against road building through beauty spots and nature reserves here in the UK. I have worked for environmental NGOs. I've spent a long time writing about environmental issues for various publications. I was deputy editor of The Ecologist magazine here in the UK, which we think is the world's longest running environmental magazine. And I've just kind of been involved at lots of different levels in battles to kind of protect nature from development. I mean, I I wouldn't set myself up as a a kind of heroic activist. I haven't done much more or less than other people, but I have been involved for quite a long time in that. He believed he could make a difference. He still does in some ways. 
but he's no longer fighting the big battles against environmental degradation and climate change, or what together he calls echocide. He's come to the conclusion that it's too late. The human machine has grown so large it's now breaking down, he says. We don't have the will to get ourselves out of this mess. Our technology can't help us. Environmental collapse is inevitable. So Paul Kingsnorth decided to make peace, the best he can, by preparing to adapt to the radical changes that are to come. This year, he moved with his wife and children from urban England to rural Ireland. A profile of his retreat from activism and his philosophy behind it appeared in a recent New York Times Magazine article entitled, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and He Feels Fine. I'm not so much disillusioned with activism as just... I suppose, who knows, maybe I'm just getting older, but I look out at the world and I think, well, the big battles that we're fighting are being lost. Small battles can still be won at local level, but the big battles we're fighting are being lost. I mean, I'm still old enough to remember when we were trying to stop climate change. Uh, Nobody talks about stopping climate change anymore. They talk about ameliorating it at most. Um, You know, there are 400 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere now. That's a huge barrier that we passed only last year. Um, Before the Industrial Revolution, there were only about 250 parts per million. We're constantly told 300 or 350 is the safe level. We'd have to get it back down to that to have any chance of even slowing climate change. And it's not going in that direction. We've had 20 years of of high-level conferences and agreements about climate change, and absolutely nothing has happened at all. Everything has gone in the wrong direction. We're moving into a mass extinction event, according to the biologists who are studying it. And I just don't see any way that people are prepared to do what actually needs to be done. Well, it sounds like you've sort of given up on that, that, uh, you know, there's, it's just not in the cards that we're going to stop this. So, so what's your attitude toward it now? Well, it's kind of been a long one for me, really. What, I, what I've tried to do over the last few years, uh, and I'm far from being alone in this, is adjust myself to this kind of new reality. So, you know, I haven't, as some people seem to think, just given up and thrown my hands in the air and said we're all doomed because, you know, here we are still alive and we have to live through it. But I think that we're now committed to going through a major climate change event. We have to live through it and we have to, everyone has to come to their own personal conclusions about what that actually means for them. So you don't uh, give a lot of credence to, say, geoengineering or other other techno fixes to this because a lot of people would say, and I have to tell you, we're speaking to you from the Silicon Valley where, you know, technology is always the solution or seen well, that, of course. <laughs> seen that way, that, you know, there are things we can do. We can fix this. This is uh, like London in the 1880s. Everybody was dying from the coal dust every winter. But there were fixes for that, and they eventually worked. Sure. Well, before you can decide on what the answer is, I think you have to decide what the question is. And I think I would be asking a very different question from the kind of guys in Silicon Valley who believe in geoengineering or synthetic biology. What I see from that is is a bunch of people who are saying, well, look, the only way that we can continue to have this, frankly, immensely greedy and destructive lifestyle that we have is by re-engineering nature from the bottom up to suit humanity. So rather than changing the way that we live and our attitude to the natural world, we're going to rebuild the natural world in our own image with everything from you know, robotic bees to space mirrors to iron filings in the sea. I, I think, firstly, that it's, it's probably entirely impractical anyway. Most of these are only ideas. But secondly, even if it were possible, do we really want to be in a situation where we say we're going to rebuild the planet, we're going to change the shape of the natural world um, just because we don't want to change our attitude to, to growth, so-called progress, etc.? Is it not time to actually sit down and say, well, how do we get to this point in the first place? How can we prevent it from getting any worse? How might we be living 
that is taking us in this direction where we're being so destructive? That seems to me to be a question we should be asking first before we start talking about machines that are going to save us from what our machines have already done. Well, it sounds indeed as if you're trying to inject some realism into this discussion. But on the other hand, I can imagine that people are going to point to you and and be somewhat critical and say, yeah, well, easy for him to say. He's just retreated into rural Ireland. I'm just going to solve this problem by by not dealing with it anymore and just take care of me and my my own. Whereas if I were a farmer in India, for example, I just don't have that option. So what do you tell them? Sure, lots of people say that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, what can you say? I mean, I'm not just taking care of me on my own or I wouldn't be writing the things I do and, and, and doing, doing my best to try and get involved at an outer level as well. It's not just about me. I mean, apart from anything else, trying to live in the right way seems to me to be setting some kind of example. Um, if I'm retreating, it's retreating from a lifestyle I was living before, which is a typical middle-class urban lifestyle, which seems to me to be unjustifiable in the face of... Um, what's going on in the world? I, I can't justify living this very um, wealthy, in global terms, middle-class British lifestyle anymore. I want to try and make as little impact as possible. But look, um, th- there's there's no there's no contradiction between doing two different things. There's no contradiction between, on, on the one hand, trying to live as well as you can on, in in your personal life and bring your children up in the right way, and teach them how to actually manage in what's likely to be a more difficult future and as i say continuing to do things at a wider level that you think are worthwhile but you also have to be realistic i mean what 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 could i do for an indian farmer what can you do for an indian farmer people can sign petitions and talk about it on facebook but in 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 practical terms you have to say what can i do with my powers what can i do in my life that might be useful for people close to me and and more widely and and you do what you can do and in my in my case that's you know trying to live as well as i can and trying to write things that I, I think will be useful for others. You've written and spoken about, you know, the value of the natural environment, N- you know, not, not in terms of what it can do for the economy, just for its own sake. And while we've changed the environment, we have not changed our genes. We have not adapted as quickly as the environment has changed. But is, is it realistic to think that we're going in the future to go back to that kind of an existence? Well... There's a term that I think was coined by E.O. Wilson, the term biophilia. If it wasn't coined by him, it's certainly been used by him. Uh, And that seems to me to be a kind of science-sanctioned term for a very ancient love of the natural world, which is ingrained within us. You use the phrase environment. I don't use the word environment anymore because that suggests that the environment is, the natural world is just something that's external to us. It's a kind of theatre that we're the actors in. We are natural animals. We're not domesticated creatures. We've never been bred. We're still wild, actually. And we need a connection to the rest of the, ro- the wild world. It's not realistic to expect anyone to go back anywhere. But this isn't a question of going back. We have this strange version of progress in which we think that behind us is, is a bunch of people living in the natural world, usually living nasty, brutish and short lives. And in, in the future, we're all living on spaceships and, and cities. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I don't think that it's actually possible for humanity to live for very long without some kind of connection to wildness. I think it actually drives us crazy. And I really do think that this is not just an economic or a material issue. There are economic and material concerns. Obviously, we're all economic and material creatures, but there's a, if I dare use the word, there's a spiritual, certainly a moral, just a very practical issue of nature mattering for its own sake, a forest mattering for its own sake. You shouldn't have to provide an economic argument to prevent a rainforest being cut down. It should just be so obvious that it's a foolish thing to do. Well, finally, Paul, your attitudes have certainly evolved uh, over the last 20 years. 
what would you say to young people today who I would dare to say are far more ecologically aware than, uh, than they were 20 years ago? But what would you tell them? Well, I think that's true. Uh, and if you're looking for some, some hope, then there it is. I think there are huge numbers of young people today out there uh, who really understand what's going on and are really angry about the systems that are causing this destruction. Well, what I would tell them is, um, funnily enough, what I would tell them is don't give up because I know there are people out there who seem to think that my message is give up, but it really isn't, actually. It's be realistic. Don't give up your sense that this matters. Don't give up your sense of outrage. Um, but at the same time, be realistic about what you can do. Think about what's within your powers to achieve and try and achieve that. You know, the one thing I would always keep in mind for everybody, keep that sense of the importance, the beauty, the wonder in the natural world and keep that sense of how outrageous it is that we should be doing so much damage to it. Because if you carry that around with you for your life, then you, you won't actually go that far wrong. If that's, if that's at the core of your morality, the core of your principles, then, then your choices will probably always be the right ones. Paul Kingsnorth, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Paul Kingsnorth is an environmental journalist and the author of Real England and The Wake. The profile of him by Daniel Smith, It's the End of the World as We Know It and He Feels Fine, appeared in the New York Times Magazine. And you can find a link to that on our website, bigpicturescience.org. So as we continue our conversation about adaptation, let's now find out what happened to those crickets because, in their case, they also faced an environmental threat. We began the show by telling you that about a dozen years ago, chirping crickets in Hawaii went silent. Marlene Zuck knows why the majority of male crickets on the islands of Oahu and Kauai no longer make a peep or a chirp. Marlene, throughout this show, we've uh, floated a few theories as to why the crickets in Hawaii stopped chirping. Now, you've studied these guys. What's the real reason they went silent? Uh, They went silent not because they could sing but didn't want to, but because they literally can't anymore. A large proportion of crickets on two of the three Hawaiian islands we work on now have a wing mutation that makes them unable to produce their song. They rub their wings with their legs or something. That's the way they normally make the chirps, right? So all crickets call by rubbing their wings together. So there's a structure on one wing that rubs against a structure on the other wing, and it produces, it's sort of as if you rubbed your fingernail across the teeth of a comb, and it makes sort of a noise like that. And so every time they close their wings, you get the file moving across the scraper, as they're called, and that makes a little pulse of sound. And these crickets, because of this genetic mutation, don't have the file and scraper, or at least they don't have them in the correct position to produce any sound. So even if they did rub their wings together, it wouldn't make any noise. All right, but uh, they didn't elect to do this because they didn't appreciate the noise. This noise was serving a purpose for them. It was attracting mates. Why did this happen? What was it that forced this mutation? Well, the real question from a biological perspective is not what made the mutation happen, because mutations happen all the time. They're happening constantly at different rates under different circumstances. But the, So the real question is why did this mutation spread instead of just immediately making the cricket that carried it die out and not leave any offspring? The answer is natural selection. So if you make a noise then, and you're a male cricket, that's great because it enables you to attract a female cricket. However, for these crickets in Hawaii, 
It also means that they can attract this parasitic fly that hears the call that they make, comes over, deposits larvae on them. The larvae burrow inside the body of the cricket, develop for about a week, eating the cricket kind of from the inside out while the cricket is still alive, and then eventually burst out in this dramatic alien-like fashion, pupate in the soil and become an adult fly. And so from the cricket's perspective, it means that he's in a real dilemma because if he calls a lot, that's great because it means he can attract a female. But if he calls a lot, then that's terrible because it means he's going to attract a fly. Okay. So this was a response to a predator, presumably a new predator. I mean, how is it that these flies just appeared now? The Earth's been around for four billion years. Well, both the cricket and the fly are introduced to Hawaii. So there's lots of other places where the crickets occur where they're not bothered by the fly, and lots of places where the fly occurs, because the fly is native to North America, where they parasitize other crickets. So this situation where the two of them are together seems to be both unique and recent. It apparently happened on two of the islands, as you mentioned. Was the fly introduced at the same time on both islands? We do not know. Um, We actually study the fly and the cricket on three islands, and why we only see it on two but not three, and why it happened when it did is, we don't know. (laughs) All right, but how long did it take? We know from lab populations and some other work that it didn't happen until the late 1990s, and so they have three to four generations a year, And let's say I didn't notice it for the first few years and then noticed it in 2003. That's an evolutionary change that happened in less than 20 generations. Okay. You know, 20 generations for a cricket is less than one generation for a human. Do species generally adapt that quickly? I mean, can a couple of dozen generations produce such a a change? So scientists are starting to understand that, in fact, evolution can happen much more rapidly than we had thought. So evolution is defined by a change in the gene frequencies in the population, which is what the standard definition is. And, and people, I think, commonly think, oh, it's millions of years, it's the dinosaurs, it's, you know, species disappearing, it's, you know, the fish coming onto land and, you know, becoming amphibians. But there's also evolution that happens at a more smaller scale all the time and all around us. And so scientists are increasingly appreciating what we call either evolution on ecological time scales or sometimes just rapid evolution. Well, Marlene, the male crickets made an adaptation, had an adaptation forced on them, really, Yeah. that prevents them from chirping. But on the other hand, what good is that to be protected from this predatory fly if they can't reproduce? So uh, how do they attract females now? That question, in a nutshell, is pretty much what we're doing in my lab right now, is to figure out... So when you have a mutation that spreads really rapidly, how does the rest of the organism accommodate that? We think the answer in at least a simplistic and short-term way is that the males that can't call seem to hang around the males that can. And so there's always some callers that remain, and they attract the females. If you hang around those guys, you might be able to bump into a female and get lucky yourself. Marlene Zuck, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thanks a lot for having me. Marlene Zuck is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Minnesota. Well, we've certainly heard how we're changing the environment. But, of course, Darwinian evolution is just a matter of being in tune as much as you can with that environment. So we've got problems with our health, our weight, coming down the pike, our ability to to just live where we want to live. Now, the crickets adapted to their environment by changing genetically. Of course, they didn't choose to do that. It just happened. So you'd think, okay, that saved them. On the other hand, it may not ensure their survival because they may not find any mates. 
they also had an external threat that they responded to, and so do we, except in our case, we are our own threat. We are our own predator. Yes, it's actually more of an internal threat, really. We've caused the problem. On the other hand, I look at the half-full glass because the very technology that's causing the problem, I think, can also solve the problem. And in this, I disagree a little bit with Mr. Kingsnorth. So what we've heard is that adaptation at the physical level has costs and benefits and also at the technological level, the same. Thanks to a production team that's adaptive to quickly changing circumstances and deadlines, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Molly Sharlock. Also support from Google, Mina Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to apt to adapt. If you're sufficiently evolved to create more Big Picture Science, we have anticipated and responded to your needs. You can find more episodes on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not save yourself the time it takes to do multiple clicks and download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you're just not keen to adapt to technology that doesn't involve a mob, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, we'll consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Or praise. Well, write us at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. I implore you again, Mildred, stop dumping the chamber pot out the window. We have indoor plumbing now. I shudder at what the neighbors must think. I don't care. I still don't trust it. Oh, this is costing me a fortune in chamber pots. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.